encourage us all at once and use your servant Ryan now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, Dom, for getting us started here today. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you as always. Uh, Andy Stanley once said this. He said, a single act of courage is often the catalyst for something extraordinary. Think of that for a moment. A single act of courage is often the catalyst for something extraordinary. If, if you think of some of the big events in human history, often they happened, they started because one person or group of people took a moment to step out and act in faith, in, some, in faith in something, an act of courage or a courageous act. Think of we have the Revolutionary War, sort of this Boston Tea Party, people willing to step out and say, we want to stand against tyranny. Rosa Parks had a day, a single act of courage to say, this is the day I no longer will move to the back of the bus, which started the bus boycott that spread throughout the South and eventually led to the desegregation. I think of Martin Luther, the reformer, in in a single act of courage to stand against the church as it was known back in the 1500s and stand against it. It was the beginning of something extraordinary. It's a famous story of some missionaries, one named Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. They went into a, a region in Ecuador to a tribe that had never known Jesus, and they went in there to bring the message of God's grace, and as they got there, they were killed for their faith. But as a result of that, Elizabeth Elliott and some others decided to go back in. They said, if we are about the message of grace, then even those who would take life will need to hear about the grace of Jesus. So she and some others went in, and that single act of courage became the moment that that tribe all became Christians and became a tribe of missionaries to all the other tribes in the region. That act of courage was a catalyst for something extraordinary. And, and as I think about these stories, sometimes you think, like, what is at work in these people who had the, the willingness to step out? What is at work that got them to the point where they had such clarity of vision of what their life would be about that they, got, they were able to step out in that act of courage? How do we get to a point in our lives where we have that kind of focus? Now, for most of us, we're never going to get to those, those moments where, it, it, that, where we're, lives are put on the line for an act of courage. But what are the things in our lives that would cause us to step out and act courageously? Obviously, for us this morning, we want to talk a lot about what that looks like in our life of faith. And we're in a series in the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, and we're seeing kind of, today we're going to end our series for a while, we're going to put it on pause, and we're going to end it at what I would consider like a season-ending episode. You know, the episodes at the end of a season of a show that you like to watch, they always leave you kind of on the edge of, wait, what's going to happen next to this this character, what, what's going to happen when the season starts back up? And we're going to kind of, that's where we're ending it today. And for those of you who don't like cliffhangers, you can actually read ahead in your Bible and find out what happened. But if you don't, you'll be right on the edge of what will happen next with Paul. But we've been looking at this guy named Paul traveling along and sharing his faith with a lot of different people and seeing the churches grow and people who once didn't believe now have this a vibrant faith in, in God, and they're finding freedom in their lives and, and a, a new way of living, and it's revolutionizing the ancient world. 
And we see Paul today was at work in his heart as he was able to take a courageous act. And we're going to ask that question of what can we learn from him today. So before we get any further along in the text, pray with me as we start. God, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you for everyone who's here today, different places in our own faith journey. For some, Lord, they're seeking, just saying, we don't even know what we believe. Some are here this morning feeling just racked with guilt of a life that they feel is not measuring up. And some are here today rejoicing, experiencing your blessings and, and filled with joy. God, no matter where we're at in that journey, we want you to meet us here. And we know you're a God who loves us, who cares. So we pray that you'd speak to each one of our hearts today. In your name, amen. All right, so the book of Acts, we're, we're going to kind of walk through a little bit of, to show you where we are. And Acts, we're actually going to start in Acts chapter 20. And uh, where we left off last week is Paul was talking to the leaders in the church, in a church called Ephesus. And he was talking to them, and here's something Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Paul's speaking to him, he says, Now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. So one of Paul's final words to this church in Ephesus was, hey, I'm on my way now. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to leave you. I will never see you again, and I don't know what lies ahead, but one thing I know, that chains and afflictions await me. The Holy Spirit has told me that, which I sometimes like, if you're going to tell me that, Lord, I don't need to hear it. So moving on to Acts chapter 21. Paul leaves there from uh, the, the city he was in, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, in the ancient world, if you're on your way traveling from one place to the other, there were no direct flights back in the time when Paul was there. So his journey back, he's on boat after boat, and it basically hitches a ride to each port along the way to, uh, to Israel. And so we find him in a bunch of different cities. So here in Acts chapter 21, verse 4, he's in a city called Tyre. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Look what it says. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And the disciples there kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So here's the second time he has something. Paul said, every city I go to, the Holy Spirit tells me and warns me, hey, don't go to Jerusalem, or if you go to Jerusalem, chains and afflictions will await you. So now here's a group of disciples saying, Paul, it says through the Spirit. They're telling him, we don't think you should go. Now, was it the Holy Spirit telling them to tell Paul not to go? I don't think so. I think that's contradictory. But likely, it was through the Spirit, they were affirming what Paul heard. Hey, Paul, we're hearing the same thing. If you go to Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for you. So they, they urged him not to go. Paul did not respond, or he did not uh, back down. Fast forward to verse 10 of Acts chapter 21. He's now in a city called Caesarea. This is a port city in Israel. Uh, From there, you just go south a little bit. You're in Tel Aviv. They would head up the road past the airport and get to Jerusalem. So that was what Paul had left to do to get to Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea, chapter or verse 10 of chapter 21 says this. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And he came to us and took Paul's belt. He bound his own feet and hands. And he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In, the, in this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Notice that. 
He will bind the man and hand him over to the Gentiles, which would be the Roman authorities. So again, chains and afflictions wait for me. Whatever happens, it's not going to go well. And now a prophet comes and says, Paul, let me borrow your belt. And this is a guy who was known as a prophet who would, they, they affirm that he would hear from the Lord. He says, can I borrow your belt? He borrows his belt, ties his hands and feet, and says, this is what's going to happen to whoever owns the belt. To which if I'm Paul, I'm like, why did you borrow my belt? Why did I do, man, why did I do that? So he says, what's going to happen to you is you're going to be bound and handed over to the Romans. This is a pretty good, you know, end of the story journey for Paul, right? Everything to this point, after he became a Christian, he's had some hardships, but a lot of successes, and now this isn't going well. In verse 12 of chapter 21, when we all heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, come on, don't go. And Paul replied, in verse 13, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since Paul would not be persuaded, we became quiet and said, the Lord's will be done. Notice Paul's response. I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. That act, that single act of courage in Paul's life to step in to the unknown, to step in even maybe to what was known, to step into a moment where he was about to say, well, I know what lies awake or ahead of me is to be bound, to be handed over, and maybe even death. But there was an act of courage that became the catalyst for the extraordinary in his life. He ended up, I'm going to, spoiler alert, but this was written 2,000 years ago, so sorry, you had time. So Paul will eventually end up ha being handed over and find himself in Rome, where even those in the, the praetorium, the guard of Caesar, are hearing the message of Jesus and, and converting. An extraordinary thing happened because of his act of courage. When we hear stories like this and hear this heart of Paul, do you ever kind of wish you had that, that, that level of courage? I, I think of it as, as like that level of conviction and clarity of what you live for. It's kind of that brave heart level of clarity. You know, it, it, we were just at a men's retreat last weekend, and, and part of the talks is we watched a lot of movie clips because we're men, and we needed, you know, break it up, kind of our, our attention span handled that. So we watched a bunch of the guy movies, clips from that, and Braveheart. I mean, you look at that, and who isn't inspired by Braveheart and the courage that it took to stand against the army in England? You ever wish you had that kind of boldness? Or even the movie Hacksaw Ridge, a true story of a battle in Okinawa in World War II, where one soldier, Private Doss, who was a pacifist, but he wanted to do something for the war cause, but he said, I'm not going to fire a gun at anybody. I'm a pacifist. I, don't, I think God is preventing me from taking life, but I want to be a medic and give life. But the people around him said, you have to at least know how to fire a gun. And he said, I'm not going to fire a gun. Eventually, they allow him to go, and the, the, the movie is depicting a true story. We're at the end of a, a bloody battle in a place called Hacksaw Ridge. He went up and saved the lives of, he would say, 50 people, 
the soldiers in his unit said he saved 100 lives. So history usually splits it down the middle and says somewhere around 75. But by himself, an act of courage, he went and said, I know what I am here for. Well, when I hear those kind of stories, I think, man, when, and translate that to my faith, I just wish sometimes I had that kind of clarity and that courage to step out and, and see God do something. And as we think of that in our own lives, I, I think for many of us, it's not the brave heart moments or the Hacksaw Ridge moments, but the little moments of courage along the way. What are those little moments that are asking for a courageous faith? Willing to forgive a family member who is not deserving of forgiveness. Maybe to reconcile with a spouse that's hurt you deeply. Maybe a courageous faith for our students to not back down on your faith, even in the face of teachers and peers who think you're backwards and old-fashioned and out of touch. How do we have that kind of courageous faith? I have a couple questions for you today that I think will help us walk through it. And if you'd like to take notes, write these down. Perhaps later you can reflect on them. Think of these in your own life. When we're talking about a courageous faith, here's a few things. One question is this. What do you want others to say about you? Now, often we ask this about at your funeral. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Which is great, but that does none of us any good, right? Because you're gone. (laughs) So what do you want them to say about you now? What would you want them to say? He's a nice guy, friendly, had a killer jump shot. I mean, it was awesome. You should see it. You should see it. Yeah, it's good. Another way to think about it, this, is what do you live for? What do you live for? What would people say you live for? Are they, oh, that guy, he, he lives for golf. He, he lives to play golf. I'm a foodie. I love food. There's, there, I, good food is just, that is from the Lord. I'm sorry. Some of you don't like food. I don't get it. I mean, you're vegan. I get it. So you don't like food. But, um, but some of us love food, and, but I, I don't live for food. I don't want that to be said for me, but I, I mean, I love good food. But I don't want to be known as, oh, he lives. He lives for good food. Oh, he lives for the Red Sox. He lives for baseball. I know, I know too much about baseball. I'll admit it. You can give me any year that, uh, from the time I've been alive, you can throw it out like, you know, 1985, and I can tell you that the Royals beat the Cardinals in 1985. I just get it, but you know that. So anyway, but so I know too much about baseball, but I don't want someone to say you live for baseball. What do you live for? What would people say? What would they say about you? Obviously, for us, we want your faith, your life in Jesus to be part of that. We would love for you to have that to be said of you. So that's the first question. What do you, what do you want said about you? The other is this. What distracts you from courageously living out your purpose? What distracts you from courageously living out this faith that God has given to you? That now is true of many of us in this room who believe in Jesus. What distracts you from that faith? I was thinking about a a few years ago, my family, we were on a road trip uh, into Colorado. And uh, we have this little 20-foot RV that we've driven all the way across the country and back and driven all over. Packing your family into a car and driving across the country is a great thing to do. 
It's actually a lot of fun in an RV. It makes it a lot easier. And uh, so we love to do that, but we were driving into Durango, Colorado one night and uh, camping there for a few days. It's a beautiful place. Uh, we were camping right on the river, and, uh, but we were uh, planning to get in in the daylight, but it was getting late uh, because we were uh, at one point in our earlier in the day, I decided to drive 20 miles in the wrong direction just to check out the road. And then, uh, so it made us a little later than I thought it would be. And when it got dark, it started to rain. And our RV is kind of old, so our lights aren't very bright. And so it was one of those nights when you're driving and you can only see maybe 50 feet in front of you. And so you're, all you're doing is using the lines on the road to stay in the road. Anyone there with me? You've done that before. And, and you're just kind of looking and you don't really care what's beyond 50 feet because you don't, can't see it anyway. And you just stay, as long as I stay in the lines, I'll probably be okay. So we did that kind of slow drive in, got to our campsite, spent a couple days there, had a great time. The day we left, we left from our campsite and it was daylight. And when it was daylight, I got to see what the road actually looked like. And I did not know that there was a sheer cliff on the side of the road for that whole drive in. And I'm glad I didn't know <laughs> because that would really change the drive. But my drive in was no big deal. I didn't know there was a danger lurking. I didn't know. I just, I thought I'll stay in this line. It looks good. It's too dark over there. Who knows what's there? But later to find out that, oh, there is danger lurking there. I had no idea. I was focused on where I needed to go. I wasn't distracted. I was more distracted in the daylight than I was when I couldn't see because I knew what was out there. For some of us, maybe when we think of our courageous faith, what distracts us, it might be when we know the dangers that possibly lurk. But there's another thing that happens on road trips that I, I think is an illustration that will work for us here today. So I want to I show you, this is not a riot shield, as someone asked in the first service. This is a windshield of a motorcycle, I ha uh, and it's from my motorcycle because it's way cooler to drive around town without this on. Okay, you don't look as cool when you have it on, so I had to take it off when I bought it. But so I knew it would come in handy for something. But one thing that happens when you drive across a country, you will find out that there are a lot of bugs in our country. I don't know if you've ever done If you've ever driven across Texas, uh, which, you know, anyone of us who've ever driven across Texas, that's... You know, you're not being punished by the Lord. I, you might be. I don't know. But if you never, when you stop to get gas, if you never cleaned your windshield and you tried driving across the country and back, it wouldn't take long before you wouldn't be able to see a thing, right? There's so many bugs out there. And I was kind of thinking about this, at that sometimes for us, that this is what gets in the way of acting courageously is not the dangers on the side, but it's all the things that block our view in front of us. And the same thing happened with Paul. Actually, Paul learned to live without those distractions. I want to show you. Look at Philippians chapter 3. I have it on screen for you. Paul was writing about his life and saying, Hey, I, you know, I have all these credentials in my life. And uh, I, I was born a Jew of Jew. I was trained as a Pharisee. I know my faith well and circumcised on the eighth day. All these things. And he says in verse 7, Whatever things were a gain to me, I counted these things lost compared to Christ. And then, verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish that I may gain Christ. Mere rubbish that I may gain Christ. What Paul was actually saying here was all these good things in my life 
Those things are a loss compared to knowing Christ. Even the good things could have become a distraction. And he uses this word, skubala. It's a, it's a Greek word. Say that out loud with me, skubala. Don't cuss in church. Come on now. Anyway, so this is actually the word rubbish there. And it, it's the best way to think of it is it's kind of like, like dog do. It's literally what he's saying. He's saying anything compared to knowing Christ is, is, is like what you pick up in the little doggy bag when you take your dog for a walk at night. It's all, that's what it's worth. Now, he's not saying that your family is dog do or anything like that. But what he's saying is compared to knowing Christ, none of it has value. And so Paul's saying even the good things in my life can be a distraction. Even things like family. First service, I wrote on here with a, a dry erase, and nobody could, I couldn't even see it, and I'm standing here. So we're doing a little different. For some of you, maybe it's work. It's a good thing. Your work is a good thing. But can that become a distraction? Can that become more important to you? How about hobbies? I mentioned golf earlier. Some of you live to play golf, right? Live, what about living for a good surf session? That doesn't happen here in San Diego, right? I know those of you who normally come first service, and when you come second service, I'm like, how was the surf report? Yes. What about church? Even your involvement in church can become a distraction. You can be so busy being churchy that you're no longer stepping out in courageous faith. It gets in the way. How about your retirement? Oh, yeah, you're so focused on retirement that your life is now all about just making sure that pretty soon you can play golf and surf. And it gets in the way. Even good things can distract us from a courageous faith. I'm sure all of us, if I gave you a sticky note today, could write things in your life that are not bad things. But they're distracting from a courageous faith. When good things in our life become God things, they become elevated, that's where we have a problem. Paul says all these things are a loss compared to knowing Christ. So there's part, that's some of our distractions. Now here's the other thing. Paul later writes, he's writing in sec, to the church in Corinth. He's writing in 2 Corinthians, and it's almost the opposite of the good things in his life. He says this, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says that there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So he said, there's something that was, he, he literally calls it a thorn in my flesh that's, that was given to me. Satan sent it to a messenger to torment me so that I don't get too arrogant. Okay. Going on, he says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that this thorn might leave me. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, for when I am weak, I am strong. Now, what was Paul talking about here? What is the distraction? I, what was keeping him from a courageous faith or, or wanting to? He's, he calls it a thorn in his flesh. Now, what is that? There's scholars have different ideas of what it might be. Some think it might have been a physical alien, uh, ailment. Physical alien, that would, that would distract you. 
oh, there's this alien who keeps walking around all the time. So uh, it was an ailment, some people might say, that he maybe had some blindness or whatever, and it was frustrating to him. Others say that it was a struggle with sin in his life, maybe a, a, a temptation that just kept coming up over and over and over again. There's a movie called Paul, the Apostle of Christ that was made a few years ago, and their interpretation was that the thorn in his flesh was the memories of his past when he was killing Christians and, and sentencing them to death. That that was the thing that kept tormenting him, and it come, pops up until the end of the movie. I, I actually think there's some truth, and if you think about that, look at the language here. He pleads with God three times. Now, when he says three times, don't think like Paul, seriously, three times you ask to God. Some of us struggle with some sins, and it's like, really, I only have to pray about it three times and it's done? <laughs> when he says three times in Scripture, that means over and over and over again. It doesn't mean that he just only prayed three times. So he's saying, I pleaded with God over and over again, remove this thorn from my flesh. He was a messenger sent to torment me. And I really believe that it's something in Paul's life was bringing up his past. That's what was tormenting him. Again, at the men's retreat last week, one of the speakers said this, that the enemy of God wants to distract us from a life of faith. And they'll do it, they read your mail. Think of this, like a, politic a political campaign. When you want to beat your competition these days instead of telling everybody what you believe all you have to do is find the dirt on the other person right that's how politics work now be the less dirty person out there so but the enemy works the same way he looks through your trash what are the things in your life that you've discarded what are the things that you're into no one else knows what are the things in your past that you wish would go away and the enemy brings those up over and over again and it becomes Things that splatter on our windshield and keep us from clearly seeing the direction God's taking us. Maybe it's your failures. Maybe you've failed at something and the enemy wants to remind you that that's who you are. You are a failure. Seriously? You think you're going to live a life of bold faith? You're going to mentor others? Look how bad you did at raising your own kids. You didn't do that well, so you're a failure. God's not going to use you. How can he use you? Maybe it's the struggles you've had your whole life. You are an alcoholic. You are just one bad weekend away from falling off the wagon. Why do you think you should be used for Christ? Why do you think you should step out in faith? If you do that, you're going to mess up, and everyone's going to know about your mess up, and then Jesus is, no one's going to believe in him when they find out that you screwed up. These voices come back to us, tell us, oh, your struggles, you're not the type of Christian that God can use. Your, your struggles beyond, you went past the line. There's certain sins that are okay, but yours, no. The enemy wants to use that against you. How about just your flat out, not just your temptations, but the sin in your life? Oh, you're a sinner. God's forgiven you so many times for that sin. You're one more, and he's, he's done. He's, he's not going to use you. Don't try to have a courageous faith. What about your regrets? What about the things in your life? You say, oh, it's so stupid that I did that. 
I can't believe I made that decision. I can't believe I thought that would work out. I can't believe my marriage ended up that way. I just, there's so many things I've done wrong, and it keeps us from clearly seeing a vision forward that God wants for you. All of these things are clouding your views, and you just say, I, I, I don't, I'm afraid to take a step forward because I can't see. How about doubt? How about that, the doubt? Is God even real? What if I step out and live a courageous faith and I get to the end of my days, I die, and there's someone there saying like, nope, got that wrong. What if I step out in courageous faith and God doesn't catch me and I fall? What if he's not strong enough? Or what if, like Paul, he says, oh yeah, not just be bound, but you'll give your life for this. I don't know if I can do it. See, there's all these things in our past, and Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord over and over and over again that he would take these things away, that he would help me forget them, that he would say, no longer is that part of your story. And and believe me, Paul got it. He understood that he was a new creation. Paul understood that all of his past was in the past. But even in Romans 7, he talks about this struggle of between the old self and new self. And I think the enemy wants us to live in our old self. When Jesus is trying to set you free to a new reality. In all of these things, this is what the enemy wants to do. This is who you are. You're a failure. You doubt. You sin. You struggle. You've messed up. You're not a courageous person who can step out in faith. That's not you. It's not. Look. So just sit there. Don't move forward. But notice what Paul says. I pled with the Lord and God said this. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is so much bigger than your failures. That's nothing. Oh, your regrets, your struggles, those are nothing, Paul. Oh, you get distracted by work, I can take care of that. Your doubt, your sin, my grace is enough for you. Paul, my grace is enough for you. So I will boast in my weaknesses. For when I'm weak, he is strong. And then all of a sudden, I don't have to just live for family. Family's a good thing. But sometimes my desire to love my family well and to, to, to encourage them and to protect my kids and give them a perfect life because life is perfect, right? All of that can sometimes become so distracting. But God says, Set, let it, put it away. Church involvement. Ryan, your, your gr- goodness is not based on how good you do church. Put it away. My retirement, well, I work at a church. Forget that one. Uh, (laughs) Hobbies. Ryan, it's good to have hobbies, but don't live for those. Those aren't what make a difference in this world. That's not the extraordinary. Let Jesus clear the view, and when we focus on his grace and our life is wrapped up in who he is, we say, Satan, quit reading the mail because God's grace is sufficient for me. Amen? Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, when he's speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says, I entrust you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are holy. You're entrusted to God and his grace, and that is enough for you. 
God wants to clear your view that you may step out and live a courageous life of faith. And guess what? You're going to fail at this. Some of you are going to leave here and go like, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to step out in faith. Great. We, I mean, I want that for you. But I want you to know you're going to stumble from time to time. Fall on his grace. Don't let those stumblings clear the view again. Don't let your sin that's going to happen in the next week say you're not good enough. Oh, you doubt it again. Fall on his grace. And the more we understand who God is and what he's done for you, we keep the clear view and we can step out with courage. As a team makes their, worship team makes their way back up, I just want to leave you with this thought. And I love the way Mark Twain actually said this. He says, courage is the resistance of fear, not the absence of it. You know, for some of us, we think, well, I would love to have a courageous faith, but I fear what my classmates will say. I fear what my professor will say to me. I fear what my spouse will say to me. If I go to her and say, I'm so sorry, I haven't led you well, I haven't loved you well, will you forgive me? You fear how that's going to go. You fear what it would be like for you to lead your business with integrity, focused on integrity, not the bottom line. It may cost you something, and you fear that. That fear is normal. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the resistance of it. And when we know who our God is, we can step into those moments boldly. We're going to end our time here and sing a song. We're actually going to end with baptism as well. Um, and we have uh, one person being baptized. And you know what? If anyone else wants to, come see me over here during the song and talk to me about it. And we'd love to uh, make that available. If God's wor working in your heart and you said, you know, I've never taken that step of faith. And today I'm going to. Uh, let me know. Sorry, that's not on the plan. But, you know, if it happens, it happens. If not, that's cool. We're going to... Um, move forward and end our time. But would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time now. We thank you, Lord, that every time we get distracted and the windshield gets cluttered with failure, doubt, regret, it gets cluttered with good things. Every time all of that comes into our view, God, that when we land on your grace and we see you fully and understand fully who you are, Lord, that it clears the view. Lord, would you give us a, a courageous faith a courageous faith that loves the world in the way that they need to be loved. That loves one another in a way that we all need. God, would you move in this place? In your name, amen. Would you stand while we sing this song and prepare for baptism here?